maybe you don't move around very much. And let's say this afternoon, some of the women asked you to go on a hike with them. What happens? Two things happen. First, your body is shocked during the workout. I mean, it looked nice in your head when you played it over, but when you actually get involved in it, all of a sudden your breathing is really heavy and your heart rate goes up and you're not used to exerting that specific level of energy. The workout is much harder than you expected it to be. And the second effect, well, that usually comes the next day, right? And even worse, the day after that. You're sore. And uh, all of a sudden, going down steps and sitting down in a seat hurts a lot worse than it's supposed to. Well, the same thing happens when you practice one kick 10,000 times. And the sermon letter to the Hebrews can be a lot like that for our minds. So during this session, what I would like to do, and I'm breaking it up into two parts because it's a heavy theological section, and I want to give you a little breather in between to get in your little breakout groups for 15 minutes and just go over some of your questions and let it sink in, and then we'll come back. But I'm going to be laying down the crux of our verse, the confession of our hope. You know, it's interesting in this sermon letter, the preacher to the Hebrews, he reprimands them for their theological immaturity. And he's lamenting that he's having to give them milk instead of that meat that he wanted to give them. Well, could you imagine if your pastor got up here and just preached the sermon letter to the Hebrews to you this Sunday? I think many today find this sermon to be more theological meat than they can handle. So like a first workout, this talk it may gauge your theological fitness levels. And you might see which muscles have been exercised really well for you, and a lot of this will be good reminders for you and, and motivation, I hope. But then you're also maybe gonna see which muscles that you've been neglecting a little bit, and those might feel a little sore afterwards. Every Communion Sunday, my old pastor in West Virginia would ask a question before Communion, and he would ask, Christians, what do you believe? And in unison, we would all confess the Apostles' Creed. And this is a creed that Christians have been faithfully reciting for over 1,500 years. Do you know what you believe? Um, there's a great little podcast called The White Horse Inn, and they have the motto, know what you believe and why you believe it. Well, that's what theology aims to do. It aims to answer that what and that why by studying the who. And I'm not talking about the band for those of you who are familiar with the who. You know, if we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope, to persevere in the Christian life, then we better know what that confession is. So let me ask you, do you struggle to articulate the content of your faith. You know, what is it that you cling to when your faith is challenged? Because we're all holding fast to something. Are you clinging to a feeling that you have at that moment? Is that what you're gonna follow? Maybe an experience that you've had in your life? Are you clinging to your own good works and hope that you've been good enough 
for the Lord to take you in at the end and carry you now? Are you clinging to the way that you were raised or the people whom you associate with? See, here's the thing about Christianity that's so different from every other religion. Christianity is a historic faith, and it is based on actual content. There are certain elements to our confession that would devastate our faith if they weren't true. So one popular book that was read by a lot of Christians, uh, written by a pastor at the time, um, he had this to say about the Christian faith that was very troubling. He said, you know, what bothers me about Christianity is that we lay down our doctrine like bricks, okay? So we lay down creation, and that's a brick. And we lay down the Virgin Mary, that's another brick. And the incarnation, brick. Trinity, brick. Justification, brick. And he says, we build this big brick wall. And then he says, well, what happens if six months down the line we find out that there's evidence that, in fact, Mary wasn't a virgin after all, and that maybe virgin just meant young woman. He says, okay, well, this is what happens. That brick gets removed, and then our whole faith comes tumbling down. And he says, we don't want to build a wall like that. No. So his suggestion was we need to think of our faith more like a trampoline, okay? So we are going to put our little doctrines and our beliefs in more of a circle that way, okay? So we'll put the Virgin Mary in the circle and the Trinity and the Incarnation, justification by faith and all these things. And then if six months down the road we find that, in fact, Mary wasn't a virgin and we remove that doctrine, we can still jump. We can jump on the trampoline and we can love our faith still and we can still call ourselves Christians and be happy. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is the Apostle Paul himself labors this point I'm making in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's talking about bricks. And he says, if the dead are not raised, take that brick out, let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. What's he saying there? Hey, if one of these things isn't true, what the heck are we doing here? Let's party. Why are we here? You see, hope isn't the same as wishful thinking. It's based on truth. True truth, as Francis Schaeffer would call it. And Hebrews is full of these essentials of the Christian faith. And in it, we're going to find that all the Old Testament types were pedagogically pointing to the true archetype, Jesus Christ, the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. This is good news for us. You see, the thing is, every single one of you is a theologian. And every single one of you has a creed already that you live by. The question is, are you good theologians based on the truth in God's word, knowing him truly, or are you poor theologians based on your own thoughts and your own creeds? Since theology is merely the study of who God is, that is something that every single person wrestles with. Even the atheist, I mean, they define themselves with the word God in their title, no God. So they have a theology as well. So as soon as you begin to answer the question, who is God, 
you are giving a creed. Some Christians like to say that they don't hold to any creed but the Bible. Entire churches will have this no creed but the Bible, which is a creed actually in itself. But that's not exactly an honest answer then, is it? Um, my colleague Carl Truman has written a wonderful book called The Creedal Imperative, which I recommend, and I wanted to quote from it. He says, Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. Rather, they're divided between those who have public creeds and confessions that are written down and exist as public documents, and they're, they're subject to public scrutiny, evaluation, and critique. And then those who have private creeds and confessions that are often improvised, unwritten, and thus not open to public scrutiny, not susceptible to evaluation, and crucially and ironically, not therefore subject to testing by scripture to see whether or not they're true. So thankfully, throughout history, the church has labored to preserve an orthodox profession of what a Christian believes. And we hand that down generation after generation. And these creeds, they serve like maps to the word of God, helping us to comprehensively understand the teachings in scripture. So, you know, when I was told I'm coming to Huntsville, Alabama, I could look up this church, I could look up Huntsville on a map and get a very good idea of my location, right? But that's not the same as being here. It helped me to get here and have an understanding of where I was gonna be, but I haven't met one of you yet, have I? I hadn't stood here and talked with you and shared different experiences with you like I have and the joy that I've had in being here. So I, I think of that comparison with creeds as well. They're so helpful and necessary, and they, these are guardrails for us in the Christian faith to help protect us and read scripture rightly. It's not the same as scripture itself. So the confession of our hope, well, that's the gospel. The short version is just three words. Jesus is Lord. That's our confession of hope. But to quote Dr. Truman again, arguably, all of Christian theology is simply one long commentary upon or fleshing out of this short, simple, ecstatic cry. Jesus is Lord. So let's get to it. Who is Jesus? That's our question, right? Jesus is Lord. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In this verse, we have two profound statements about Jesus. We see that he is Lord both in his person and in his work. That is something worth reflecting on and articulating well. So I thought I'd use the help of David, a Puritan, and the sermon letter to the Hebrews to elaborate on this profound confession that Jesus is Lord. You see, the preacher to the Hebrews, he wouldn't exhort them to hold fast to a confession that he hasn't already faithfully delivered in his sermon, right? What sort of creed do we find in the sermon letter to the Hebrews? Well, what is a sermon? 
the pastor just get up here and start talking about God? No. He is exegeting scripture for you, right? Well, what, what verse is the sermon letter to the Hebrews based on? Or what section of scripture is Hebrews based on? Well, recent scholarship has suggested that Hebrews may in fact be a sermon based off of Psalm 110. I'm going to go ahead and read that psalm for you. If you, wanna, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Psalm 110. We're going to be camping out here this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, how many times have you read through this psalm and not fully grasped everything that's going on in there. For me, it was a lot. Some of this language sounds kind of difficult to understand at first glance, doesn't it? But there's such impact to the meaning of these verses. So hopefully this session is going to show you that Psalm 110 is a confession of hope that strengthens our praise, that Jesus is Lord. And this is the good news so what I want to do real quick is to share with you just four reasons why we should study Psalm 110. Not just this morning, but I hope for you guys for the rest of your lives, you'll be able to go back to this psalm and, and just glean from its riches. And the first suggestion to study Psalm 110 is if you want to hear God speak. Study Psalm 110 if you want to hear God speak. We want that, don't we? There's a lot of books written for women about receiving personal messages from God. Um, Jesus is calling, right? And if we just go for a walk, um, maybe we can quiet ourselves and hear a personal message just to us from Jesus. We want to hear that. Well, I have a question. Why don't we let God tell us our confession of hope in his word? Something that applies to every single one of us in every situation. Look at the beginning of this psalm. The Lord says. Here we have some more powerful beginning words. We're talking about the word of God. Um, Edward Reynolds, a Puritan, says, God saying is ever doing something. His words are operative and carry an unction and an authority along with them. Man, I wish my words carried that kind of unction with them, but they don't. I mean, just recently I was having a conversation with my husband, sitting right across from each other, and I was asking him about a speaking engagement um, that I was asked to do, and it's in California, so it was going to require an extra day of travel with the time change and everything, and I just wanted to 
make sure our, our calendars were up for that. Sure, honey, yeah, that looks good. Go ahead and do it. A couple days later, I mentioned that I had booked it, and he says, you're going to California in March? <laughs> I was like, we had an entire conversation about this. You were responding and everything, but he has no recollection. My, my words carried no unction. So study Psalm 110 if you want to hear God speak. Secondly, study Psalm 110 if, if you want to know God's will. We want to know God's will for our lives, right? That's what we cling to when our faith is challenged. In Psalm 110, we see the covenant of redemption, God's eternal plan, his appointment of Christ to his office of prophet, priest, and king. And, and look at this psalm. There's another word in here that we may think is insignificant, but it tells us so much. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That word right there, until, that's where we are. It's like X marks the spot on those little maps that says you are here. That is where we are in God's will right now. We are at the until part. And we see where Christ is now at the right hand of the Father and what he is doing. And we're so good at talking about what Christ has done in his work, which is very important. You know, that he died for our sins and we know that the tomb is empty. But we are going to focus a lot today on, on where he is now as well. So study Psalm 110 if you want to know God's will. Study Psalm 110 if you want to know what all these New Testament writers are talking about because Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Not only that, if you were to take all the allusions to this psalm as well, where it's not just directly saying it is written, but it's referring to Psalm 110, it's the most quoted section of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Must be a pretty big deal then, right? I mean, just the direct quotes are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and several times in Hebrews. And then indirectly, it's referenced in 1 Corinthians, a whole lot more in Hebrews, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter. It must be important for us then, right? The New Testament writers must have thought it was important. And then lastly, study Psalm 110 if you want a creed as solid as David's. Um, when I first was reading about how recent scholarship believes that Hebrews is a sermon letter based off of Psalm 110, I thought, wow, I need to learn a lot more about Psalm 110. And I found this wonderful resource um, written by a Puritan named Edward Reynolds, and it's actually available online, or you can order the book, and it's a little more academic. But um, he calls this psalm one of the clearest and most compendious prophecies of the prophecies and person and offices of Christ in the whole Old Testament, and so full of fundamental truth that I shall not shun to call it David's creed. And you're going to see there's so many similarities between Psalm 110 and the Apostles' Creed. I think you'll notice a lot of those parallels as we go through this. So David Reynolds, what he does after calling it David's creed, is he pulls out 14 confessions of the faith 
that we can find in these seven verses. So that is what I am going to be doing with you this morning. And so we're going to see how the sermon letter to the Hebrews does indeed build a strong confession of hope for us to be able to hold fast to in perseverance. And the first ones we're going to do is how Jesus is Lord in his person. And then we're going to take a little break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how Jesus is Lord in his work. And some of these confessions, I've put them all in your um, notes there. Some of them you see are paired together. So that'll help us out a little bit. So the first two confessions that we most certainly can hold fast to in perseverance show how Jesus is Lord in his person. And the first one, as you can see in your handout, is the doctrine of the Trinity. This one's pulled right out of the first line of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord. And maybe you'll notice the differences in your Bibles of how Lord is spelled. One has small capital letters for O-R-D and one does not. That shows us that here we have God, the Father, Jehovah, speaking to the Son, Jesus Christ. Well, that's interesting. How does David know about a conversation between the blessed Holy Father and the Son? Preacher Charles Spurgeon marvels how condescending of Jehovah's part to permit a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his secret converse with his co-equal son. Well, it's by his spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that this sacred conversation is revealed to David. Edward Reynolds also points out the role of the Holy Spirit consecrating the son to be David's Lord. So this verse is implying then that there was a plan even before the creation of the world for God to call a people to himself and for that son, his son, to accomplish the work to make this plan possible and for the Holy Spirit to apply the son's work to his beloved church. We call this plan the covenant of redemption. So think about that for a minute. As David is privy to this intra-Trinitarian conversation, we see that since Jesus is Lord, there is nothing that he cannot do for our salvation. And since this was planned in eternity, there is nothing that we can do that's going to surprise God. He already knows. And he's already provided a way of grace for us. We also learn about the doctrine of the Trinity in the first few verses of Hebrews. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 for you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Where do we even begin 
with an opening like that. I mean, what an opening hook for a sermon, right? I mean, we see right away that Jesus the Son is the ultimate prophet who has spoken to us. We also see that the Son is the heir of all things, so he must then have the ultimate kingdom. And as we know that the world was created by God's speech from reading Genesis, we see here that the Son has created the world. So this prophet who has spoken to us in these last days is the same one who spoke the world into existence. And not only that, he sustains this very universe by the word of his power. What kind of power is this? And what is he like? Well, we see in our verse, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's a great book uh, by Michael Reeves um, called Delighting in the Trinity. And he describes the importance of God's being as he also teaches us truly to delight in the Trinity. And so I wanted to quote him at length, if you could bear with me here. I think it's an important point. There are two Greek words you will never use on a holiday in Corfu, but they drip with nectar. The first is hypostasis. I know, sounds like a nasty skin condition, but it actually, actually means something like foundation. Hypo meaning under, and stasis meaning something which stands or exists. It's also the word used to describe God's being or his nature in Hebrews 1.3. Hypostasis describes the Father's being, what is foundational to him. The other word is ecstasis, from which we get the word ecstasy. It's a word to do with being beside yourself or being outside yourself. Ek meaning out from, and then stasis again, something which stands or exists. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have their hypostasis in ecstasis. That is God's innermost being. His hypostasis is an outgoing, loving, life-giving being. The triune God is an ecstatic God. He's not a God who hoards his life, but one who gives it away, as he would show in that supreme moment of his self-revelation on the cross. The Father finds his very identity in giving his life and being to the Son. And the Son images his Father in sharing his life with us through the Spirit. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, uh, moving to the doctrine of the cross, but I wanted you to see this connection. Christ's work on the cross outflows from who he is. That is the epitome of theological fitness. Now, I don't know if you've been following some of the latest Trinity debate that's been going on between different scholars, but you'll see there's a lot of um, academic language used, precise language used in describing the Trinity. It could be a difficult doctrine for us to grasp, and we're not supposed to grasp it all now on this side of heaven, but 
even though we can't fully understand God's makeup, there are certain things he has shared with us for us to know about him. And one is that scripture teaches us that he is one being in three persons. You can begin to see that from this quote that I just shared with you, why that matters. I had a discussion with my father-in-law one, Christ, one Christmas Eve a couple years ago. He is agnostic, is what he says. And um, sometimes, you know, if he has a glass of whiskey, he wants to talk to me about religion, you know. So um, it was one of those nights, and he shared with me that he believes we all came from stardust. Now, this is an intelligent engineer who worked for NSA his entire life. And, I mean, my jaw had to drop when he made such a statement. And I had just finished reading this book, Delighting in the Trinity, and I just asked him, can you please tell me how stardust explains the creation of beautiful, loving, thoughtful, relational human beings? How does that happen? Because we have an ecstatic God in hypostatic union. And so when we look at our English translations and we see this word nature here in verse 3, I hope that all of this will come to your mind and to your hearts now while you're reading that because the English word just doesn't quite do the justice for this one God in three persons who is most certainly a God worthy of our praise. All right, our second confession is the incarnation of Christ. Laying down that brick for you. Also, in the first verse of Psalm 110, we see this clause, my Lord. See, Jesus the Son, he isn't only a Lord, but David can call him my Lord. This is truly amazing, especially in this time of ancient history when um, the father would never call his son Lord we know that Jesus descended from the line of David. You know, all those boring genealogies that we want to skip over in our Bible reading labor to preserve that history. So Matthew 1.1 begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what do we do? We pretend to pay attention until we finally get to verse 16, about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. But here we have David calling his son his Lord. Incredibly, the son of David is the son of God. Jesus, who was born in the line of David, he also comes from a much higher sonship, as Reynolds calls it. He's both David's descendant and David's Lord. Christ affirms this himself in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, kind of gives the Pharisees a pop quiz. They've been asking him a lot of questions, trying to stump him. So he decided to ask them a question, and he asks them, whose son the Christ is? Well, they know the answer to that. Christ is the son of David. But he presses further by quoting from Psalm 110. How could it be that his father, David, while in the spirit, he says, calls him Lord? And how can he be both David's Lord and his son? Well, scripture 
tells us that the Pharisees were done asking him questions after he dropped that doozy on them. I mean, they were silenced. Scripture says it a little more eloquently than that, though. But we can see allusions to the incarnation of Christ in the opening verses of Hebrews that I just read. But for this section, I would like to share Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Women, the incarnation of Christ is important to our salvation. This is an important brick. God the Son actually condescended to a real virgin's womb. Another brick. Her name was Mary. He descended from the line of David. Lay that down firmly. He was born a helpless infant, just like the rest of us. The writer of the Hebrews continues on from these verses to say that Christ needed to be made like us in every way. His suffering was real. It was existential. It wasn't just some theological check that needed to be marked off in the to-do list of redemption. So this portion of Hebrews, it then goes on to explain how the Son of God is both the merciful and faithful high priest who really could propitiate the wrath of God toward the sins of his beloved. And he really can identify with us in our suffering, even as he overcame temptation. So what does that mean for us? That means that we can walk by faith in the real path that Christ, the Son of God, ran before us. His perfect sacrifice is what has qualified us to even be in this race that the writer to the Hebrews talks about and alludes to in chapter 12. You know, as our accuser, the devil could point to us as lawbreakers, right? Enslaved to the dominion of sin. And if that were to still be the case now, he could accuse me to God Almighty right now saying, don't you know what she has done? You know what's in her heart, God. How is she able to speak to women? How are you able to exhort your sister in Christ with the sin that's in your heart right now? But Christ Jesus broke that power when he took on our flesh and he wholly fulfilled the law's demands and he bore our cross on that tree. And so we read, this is why the eternal son became man and as man was declared son of God in power. Um, Richard Phillips says, it was for our sakes because of his love for us, God's son became like us so that we might become like him in the resurrection. What an amazing God we serve. Jesus is Lord indeed. He is the son of God, 
the second person of the Trinity, and in effect of his incarnation, he is fully God and fully man. I was teaching a Sunday school class on Psalm 110, and I asked that question to a bunch of really smart Christians. Is Jesus still fully God and fully man? And there's a little bit of a pause. You know, oh, let me, <laughs> let me think through this for a minute. Absolutely. He is still fully God and fully man. He is worthy of our praise for who he is. So I'm going to say a little prayer now, and we are going to break out for 15 minutes in our groups again and answer the first couple questions in session two, and then we'll come back and do the second half. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful morning. Lord, we praise you to be able to come and learn about you. Most of all, we praise you for who you are. It's almost unfathomable for us, Lord, to learn about how Jesus is Lord in his person. Help us to meditate on that every day, to encourage one another in that. Lord, we thank you that our hope is not based on wishful thinking, but essential truths that will never change. And so we can trust your promises. Praise Jesus. We thank you and pray in his name. Amen.